Welcome to the Same 24 Hours podcast. The podcast is currently on more or less hold to accommodate the recordings for the daily community meetup. During this crazy time, I'm having daily meetings online via Zoom where we can all join and see each other on video and there's special guests. And so I thought I would post the replays here on the podcast so those who can't listen live can listen later. So here we go, continuing on with the daily community meetups. If you'd like to join, all you have to do is go to swimbikemom.com forward slash meet, M-E-E-T, swimbikemom.com forward slash meet, and you can join us any day of the week, 12 noon Eastern during the week, and weekends I'm doing 8 p.m. Eastern on Saturday and Sunday. So I hope you all enjoy this episode of the Daily Community Meeting. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. All right, welcome everyone. This is the 4,000th daily community meetup and this is your officially on Groundhog Day. So welcome back. (laughs) It's great to see you. Um, I have been... Um, in a bit of a funk and I talked about it yesterday and the day before so that was like day three of funk but today I'm out of my funk and I'm going to tell you why and what I did (laughs) last night um, I had enough I had enough because I had enough pizza and I had enough um, brownies to go I'm pretty much done with myself right now (laughs) I'm tired of feeling this way and why does it have to come to that point I'm not sure um where like the self-loathing has to take place like why can't I just be like hey I'm not feeling so great why do I have to eat myself into a stupor I don't know but what I did (laughs) was I sat down last night and I made a plan of what I was going to do today what is my plan and I realized that when I have a plan I legitimately live life better that's it like it is a simple um, tool for me just to write out my schedule, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to eat. And it doesn't have to be psychotic, but it's a guiding thing. It's like, okay, when I feel like I'm spinning out of control and I'm going to buy all the pizza available in Massachusetts, um, this stops me and it makes me, um, be more present, which I know we're going to talk about today. Somehow having a schedule allows me to be more present. And you would think like, maybe if you're just free, (laughs) you can be more present. Maybe if we're just, you know, feeling the day, we'll be more present. But that does not work for me. You can't ring the doorbell in the coronavirus. (laughs) 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 Ah, No, that was crazy. All right. So here we are. And I thought, I would read this quote. I just finished Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, and it was fantastic. It's, um, it has a lot of great tidbits. And this stuck with me. What is better, uncomfortable truth or uncomfortable lies? Every truth is a kindness, even if it makes others uncomfortable. Every untruth is an unkindness, even if it makes others comfortable. 
I was like, ooh. And that's just such an interesting thing to think about as we go forward in our day, making our schedule, trying to get out of whatever rut we're in. If we make a schedule, if we make a plan for ourselves, and sometimes that is an ultimate truth for us, but it makes other people uncomfortable <laughs> or we're not keeping our schedule. We're not keeping our promises to ourselves, and we're eating all the pizza and the brownies because it makes everyone happy and comfortable. But at the fundamental core of my being, it does not make me comfortable because it is not my truth. It's not who I want to be. I don't want to be the, the pizza eating brownie mom. Like, <laughs> I don't want to be that anymore. I've done that. It proved to be a very bad experiment for me. So think about that as we go into today and I know Corey is gonna just I just love this guy and you guys are too so I'm so grateful you're here Corey Corey Mascara is here he's the author of the newish book we came it came out around the same time stop mm -hmm. missing your life and what a time to have that title so um I would love if you would lead us in just a grounding meditation just four or five minutes even shorter if you want if you would be cool with that I think that would be a great gift cool that sounds great um, and you can all hear me. Okay. Not that you yeah. can all really respond, but okay, great. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, it sounds like you all have some meditation experience, so I won't, uh, I won't go into like, um, I don't know all the ways I might typically preface it. Uh, so let's just find what feels like a comfortable grounded posture for you. The one thing when we're working with meditation postures, every tradition is going to have their own ideas of how you're supposed to sit. Um, but um, most of them are just ideas and they, it depends on if you're like working with an energetic tradition, like yoga traditions or tantra traditions. My teacher in Burma was like four foot 10, had a big round belly. He'd waddle around the monastery. And when he would sit and meditate, he'd sit in a chair, he'd have his feet propped up, his elbows propped up. Um, it was the least noble spiritual thing I've ever seen. And he that was sounds perfect. That's yeah. how I feel today with my pizza belly. Maybe exactly. Like so if the pizza belly is there, awesome. <laughs> the only thing we want to consider with that, the one occupational hazard of that is that we can tend to fall asleep. And um, I always appreciated the idea that meditation is more about falling awake than it is falling asleep. So let's find a, a posture that feels um, comfortable, but also wakeful at the same time. Um, so you get to explore internally what that might feel like for you. And the invitation will be to close the eyes, but only if that's comfortable. If it feels safer uh, to keep the eyes open, that's fine. And you could just keep the gaze pointed down toward the, the computer keyboard or something toward the floor. But I'll have my eyes closed uh, so you don't have to worry about me looking at you on the Zoom screen. And as we just like start to settle in, notice if you can feel any internal shifts, even in the first five seconds of feeling this transition. We get a little more quiet. A little less talking. And for me, I, I notice parts of my body start to soften and settle in. And so see what your relationship to stillness is. Is this 
a space that feels familiar and comfortable? Or does slowing down and being still feel uncomfortable? Like something you're typically subconsciously resisting. Whatever arises is okay. Meditation is less about the experience that we have and more about how we're relating to that experience. And so the relationship we're taking here is just one of gentle curiosity. Just what is it like to be me right now? What is it like to feel whatever I'm feeling? And in a way, it's as if we're tuning to ourselves in the same way that a a musician will first tune their instrument and they're just listening to where is the instrument at today uh, and little adjustments we might need to make to get in harmony with it. Just feel where you're at today. And any little adjustments you might need to make in your mind to get more in harmony with what's here. Letting go of any ideas about how this moment should be or what you should be experiencing. And what would it be like to just fully embrace whatever your true experience is, even though it might not be comfortable? There's a different kind of comfort that arises when we start to meet moments with that kind of honesty and presence. So we'll just take a few moments to settle our attention on our breath. If you'd like, you can even place one hand on your belly to feel the breathing more vividly. We can think of the breath as an anchor for our attention. So we're just being present to the felt sense of the breath. It's not thinking about the breath, not a visualization of it, but actually feeling it. Feeling the sensations of the inhale as it presses against the hand. that sense of ease on an exhale, inviting the jaw to relax, the shoulders, the belly. Just cultivating this relaxed awareness. 
You don't have to fight the thoughts. They can sort of exist in the background like radio noise. Your only task is to give more of your attention and presence to just this breath and just this moment. When you're ready, you can start to reorient yourself back into the space. The eyes have been closed. You can let those open again. Thank you, everyone. Oh, that was nice, Corey. Thanks. You're welcome. So there is a time in my life, um, there was a time in my life where I would have been crawling out of my skin during that. Um, yeah. So the growth over the last year and a half for me, learning to be in that space and to actually do it on a Zoom call where I'm not worried about like, how's everyone feeling? What's everyone doing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like who needs to be, I mean, I peaked once and then I wrote down one thing you said, which was fully embrace the true experience of the moment. And mm -hmm. I think that's a great jumping off point because so many of us right now, especially, I think your message is so timely um, because our life is so different. And how do we fully experience this moment with what is going on and also not put our head in the sand, run away, freak out? Like, what is your, what is your thoughts on everything that's going on right now? <laughs> what is, what so, is two thoughts? So yeah. <laughs> well, I'll give, um, I'll share five five steps that I think can be useful. If you'd like me to just go into my my shtick and actually, or, let's go. Let's back up real quick because I want yeah. people to know who you are. You have such an interesting story. So let's do the the five minute you know podcast intro of 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 you, so everyone sure. kind of has the backstory. I think it's important. Cool. Do you want me to share that? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, you okay. do it. I'm not yeah. telling your story for you. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, so I, I wear a number of different hats at the moment. Um, most people might would probably call me a mindfulness meditation teacher. That's how I started most of my work. Uh, I created the Long Island Center for Mindfulness. Uh, I've been running retreats and workshops for the last 10 or so years. Um, do a lot of speaking engagements for the corporate world and education and healthcare systems. Um, uh, and a lot of it, the foundation of it is this quality of mindfulness, meditation, presence. Um, but uh, I also straddle some of the academic worlds, taught mindfulness-based leadership at Columbia to, uh, as a graduate program for a while. Um, and also I'm in the world of positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, so they have a master's in applied positive psychology there. I went through that program. I teach at that program. Um, so my, my deep interest is really in just what it means to live well as a human being, um, which is like everyone's interest. I just decided to <laughs> make a career out of it. <laughs> um, and it, and it didn't start for any noble reasons. I started meditating in college cause I was trying to impress a girl 
I had a hippie girlfriend. She was in a meditation. I wanted her to think I was cool. Uh, so I made this New Year's resolution. I was going to meditate you know, three times a week, 15 minutes a day. I made sure she knew about it. She broke <laughs> up with me a couple of weeks later. So this is no like happy ending to that story. Um, uh, but the different happy ending was that I, they, I, I started taking it more seriously, especially after the breakup. It was the one thing that was giving me some relief. And uh, at that time, at age like 19, 20, there was just something existentially, philosophically compelling about the practice. It was the first time that I, I was actually taking a new relationship to my mind, where I was stepping back and was ob observing my experience, um, rather than being so caught in uh, my experience, which is like meditation 101. But if you've never experienced that before, no one ever taught you that, um, it almost feels like you discovered something. And, and I felt like I did. The first time I, I remember lying on my dorm room bed um, and just watching the, the thoughts moving through my mind. At that time, they were related to the breakup and like all the, the things I did wrong and what I could do to get her back, yada, yada, yada. And I was so consumed by that for months. Um, and just, just seeing that I could watch those thoughts in my mind, like clouds passing through the sky, and actually create some separation to them. And, and then start to feel like an ease in my body, even with all of that going on, was radical. So uh, that connected me to this new dimension of my humanness, to see that there's a different way to be in relationship to my life. Um, and it all kind of unfolded from there. That was the beginning. Uh, I was an economics major. I thought I was going to go into the, the business finance world, maybe work on Wall Street. Um, had this... <laughs> I had this. I have uh, to laugh at that now. <laughs> I know. Can imagine? I, I mean, a lot of people back in the day could have. I was, my, my nickname in high school was the Candy Man because I, I like monopolized the candy selling business and would go to Costco and buy $300 worth of candy and then turn it over. And it was, yeah, it was a different That's time. Funny. So it's funny for a lot of people to see the transition. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I wasn't unique or special or noble like the things just like came together in such a way that this practice was presented to me at a certain time my father um who's a physician was started doing self-study in mindfulness and positive psychology as alternative ways to help his patients be happier but he was very science-minded so i wouldn't have gotten into this if it was if it weren't for the science um and yeah, and it's just become this unique blend where after college, I, I spent six months as a monk, uh, did a silent meditation retreat. Um, and that was like more on the spiritual Buddhist end, uh, like meditating 14 to 18 hours a day. How um, Was that six months of silence? I, no. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little over did six Did you talk months. to yourself? No, that's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> I would have, but if you're, if you're taking the, the silence, are you supposed to not talk to yourself either? Or could you talk yeah. to yourself? I'm being a little facetious, but um, <laughs> yeah, you're, it's supposed to be the, the silence is less about the silence and more about the container that it's creating. We exert so much energy and um, ego identification often in just like even work. As soon as you speak, we're just so used to the sound of our voice being like who we are. Oh, that's Corey. And it comes with inflection, intonation and um, it all can just like reinforce this sense of like who I am in the world. And 
a, a monastic setting, the renunciate lifestyle is just like creating as many parameters as possible um, to do some of the deep inner work of exploring, like what does it mean to have a mind, to be human, to be me, and, and to start to uh, embody all of that in a very different way. Um, yeah, so six months in silence, didn't know what I was getting into. If I did, I probably would have uh, not gone. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it changed my life and fundamentally rewired my hardware. Simple things like having a judgmental narrative, which I used to have quite a bit of, um, just doesn't really exist uh, for me anymore. There's a real coziness and friendship with myself that I consider to be the greatest gift and is the main thing I'm trying to help other people uh, develop in my work. Um, yeah, so that's kind of a, you know, if, if people want to go with me like into the deep spiritual stuff, um, I'm always happy to go there. If you want to hang out in the academic land of the brain, I'm like happy to go there as well. And if you want to just like talk about how does this relate to like drinking beer on Friday, like we could talk about that as well. Um, so navigate a lot of territories. Yeah. 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 Well, let's go back to the the question that you said you have like five tips or steps for, for right now. Sure. Or for, for any now, I guess, but especially for this, this time that just feels so uncertain. Yeah, it, right. So this is, uh, I mean, everyone's prefacing their talks these days with like, we're in very interesting times. And um, it's warranted because we are in interesting times. Um, but every time at any point, in like a person's life could be an interesting time. It just happens that this is like a collective interesting time. And with that said, people are experiencing it differently. And so I have, I have friends, family that are really suffering with this right now that are on the front lines that are like really in the fear um, and the potential danger of it. And I have other friends that are entrepreneurs that have been working from home, like for the last 10 years. And this is like, a boon for them. Like they just have more space, more time. They're going to make more money out of it. And there's no fear at all. I mean, they might be a little disconnected from other people's fear, but for them personally, um, uh, it's a different relationship. So I, I want to first just acknowledge that each person can be coming to what we're experiencing right now in their own way. Um, and just because maybe other people are going, having a difficult experience with this doesn't necessarily mean you have to conform to having a difficult experience. And just because um, you're having a difficult experience that someone isn't doesn't mean that you have to try to be positive through it, which is sort of the first step of, of what I think is helpful when navigating uncertainty or different times is, is just making space uh, for the experience, which we got to do in the meditation. Um, so much tension comes from fighting whatever our experience is. And it makes me think of the Zen uh, poem. Uh, it says, when walking, just walk. When running, just run. But above all, don't wobble. Most of the time, we tend to be wobbling. So if you think about it in like maybe real life or what used to feel like real life, where we're at work, but we're, we feel like I work too hard. I should be on vacation. So we're not actually at work. But then we go on vacation and we're, we're guilty. It's like, oh, I should be at work. And so we're not even on vacation. And so we're just constantly doing this wobbling. And um, in the, in the meditation traditions, meditation psychology is just like that wobbling is the thing that, often, that is usually creating most of our distress. It's this tension with the way things are. We're constantly combating it. So the, the first step with all of this is just to like 
and I love this is why I loved how you prefaced all of this, Meredith. Is just like meet the truth of this moment and and stand in that for yourself because it's already here. It, it, it's not a matter of whether you like it or don't like it or want to conform to it or not. It's it, it'd be like denying gravity. You could jump and be pissed that you're being sucked down to the the earth, but <laughs> eventually you have to learn to walk with it. So the the presence with this moment and softening into it. And I say that quite literally, the body can soften into it, soften the tension, the jaw, the shoulders, the belly, it relaxes the mind. And we just go, okay, this is what this moment is like right now. And can I give myself permission to be a human? Uh, a deep breath goes a long way with that. Not so much to just calm you down, but it brings more of your brain online, takes us out of the fear-based resistance um, frame of, of mind and more to like, okay, let's just be with this. And one of the things I noticed um, today, and I've, I've been noticing, is my my face. My, I mean, I notice my face sometimes, but my, uh, especially in recent times, my jaw and and just is tight. Hmm. It's clenched a lot of the time. Um, and so when when that breath and you relax, like it may be helpful for some of you to think about your face and your jaw because that has been really key for me. I spend a lot of time grinding my teeth. Yes. And, and learning to just like open my mouth a little and not uh, <laughs> has been helpful. Yeah. Yeah. That's great, Meredith. Uh, and nearly every meditation you'll ever hear me guide, the, I'll invite listeners to do three things, which is invite the jaw to soften, the shoulders, and the belly. Just these three areas that tend to grip, but especially the jaw. The, uh, when the teeth are clenched, it's just going to, it creates. It's an important point to go into. It's just, it creates extra tension in the mind. And the mind and the body are so intimately woven into the same fabric that the quickest thing you can actually do to help settle the mind is invite the body to soften and relax. Um, so that, that's the first step. And uh, it's just like to make space for your experience. Uh, and the next is, the next is going, is a bit counterintuitive, but um, we're going to be thanking the fear and the anxiety. Now, even though I preface this by saying um, you might have different experiences with this, these five steps are specifically like for navigating the fear and anxiety that could be arising. Um, so the next thing is we actually like thank it. Now, this is again working with that usual instinct to fight these experiences or immediately react to them, um, which is going to create a secondary degree of pain. Um, so what I, when I say secondary pain, there are usually two forms of pain, primary pain versus secondary pain. Primary pain is just the, the innate pain that arises from being human. Difficult events, breakup, loss of a loved one, loss of a job. The secondary pain is what we cake on top of that. Why me? Why did God do this to me? How am I going to be able to go on? I can't last this long. Those are the thoughts and the emotions we cake on top of it. Um, that the literature shows, at least with chronic pain, that that the secondary pain we cake on top of physical pain is actually more intense and more painful than the primary pain itself. So we're, we're really working with not getting caught up in, in that uh, secondary pain. And so the thanking the fear um, is just a way to meet that soft like animal of our body that just wants to be safe. That's just like, okay, what, what, is, what is this about? What does this mean? What do we have to be alert to? And recognize that that part of us is, is emerging for good reason. It has a positive intention. It's not trying to make your life 
miserable. The only reason you're alive as, as a human being right now is because our ancestors had that fear response to potentially threatening situations. And to immediately go all Zen on it and say, no fear, like you got to be cool and calm because I just did the meditation on headspace um, is like really denying and spiritually bypassing some really um, key parts of our humanness. So we, and it doesn't mean we indulge in it, but let's just meet it and say, hey, thank you, fear. Like, I appreciate you showing up. What are you trying to tell me? What are you trying to tell me that's important? Um, and in that way, the fear can like relax a little bit. It goes, okay, thank you for hearing me. It's kind of like the guard dog at the front of your door. It's barking, 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 telling you something is there. But if you're in the other room just saying like, shut up, shut up, shut up. The, the guard dog just keeps barking because it, it needs you to know, um, it needs to know that you know what it sees. So you come up to the guard dog, pet its head, say, hey, it's okay, I see you. I see the danger as well. Thank you for doing your job. Yeah. And then the guard dog goes, okay, cool. So that's yeah, when that, that's so helpful. And I'll share just an example of how that kind of showed up in my life a couple of weeks ago when this all happened. I thought, um, you know, I, I make most of my living from, from coaching and I thought, Oh no, like this, no one is going to be able to pay coaching. Um, and the fear of, of that came to me, you know, and I thought, okay, that may or may not be true, but what can I do with that time <laughs> when everyone leaves me and abandons me and I'm homeless, you know, um, what, what can I do with that time? What can I, how can I be helpful? And I was like, okay, I heard, I heard the voice saying, this is, this sucks. I'm terrified. What am I going to do? And I thought that's how these meetings showed up because I thought, how can I combat the fear? Everyone has to be feeling this fear. How can, you know, and so I just did something. And for me, combating the fear and looking at anything that comes up like that as an opportunity to do something different and to, to try something new has been really helpful for me because it's, it's not just wallowing in the what if and the outcome, but it's, it's acknowledging it. But then how can I use this as an opportunity that that's been really helpful for me and um, that I don't know where I'm going. I need no. a Buddhist uh, six month silent retreat because <laughs> I have to talk all the time. <laughs> I yeah. like to give my guests opportunities to take a break and have water is really. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, it's a really a good point, Meredith. And the, um, the meeting the fear is just getting us to a place where we can actually start looking at the opportunities um, again, with all of this stuff, we're not, th this isn't like some sort of doctrine that like focusing on fear and embracing fear is better than dismissing it. If you could dismiss fear and suppress it, and then it goes away and your life gets better, more power to you. I'm, I'm very interested in, in simple algorithmic ways to improve life. So if that strategy works then we do it, but it, in most cases and in my experience, it doesn't. Denying our actual experience suppresses it, compartmentalizes it, compartmentalizes it, um, disconnects us from other parts of ourselves. And the fear can actually become a powerful ally once we, we see it for that. So once we've, once we've done that, right, we've made some space, we've thanked the fear, appreciated it, all of this could be done, again, like over 30 minutes or it could be done over 30 seconds. Um, so it doesn't need to be a, a long thing. Um, now the fear is more of an ally and we're assessing what's the best way to proceed. This is where we want to shift between our what if and what is. So in times of crisis and uncertainty, it's really easy uh, to get swept away by the what if mind. What if this, 
goes wrong? What if that happens? What if this lasts longer than they say it's going to? What if, what if, what if? Um, and perhaps you can even like feel the internal angst that just comes from thinking about those what ifs. The what if mind can be really powerful. It helps us prepare, take useful action. It, it helps us plan. In the context of COVID-19, um, I was abroad as this was starting to happen in February and I could just, I could sense this was going to come to the States and in a significant way. And most people weren't like, didn't have reason to take it that seriously yet. But my what if mind was going like, yeah, what if this is bad? I should make sure I'm back in time Should make sure my family's prepared that they all work in healthcare. Um, so that just like helped me to take intentional action. But too much connection to the what if mind is going to create like anxiety and will be crippled by fear. And this is where we want to balance it with the what is. So that is like what is actually here right now. Usually what we see is that the, the actual reality of this moment is much safer and less of a catastrophe than our mind is making it out to be. So we could all whip ourselves up into a frenzy in this moment thinking about what if, what if, what if. But if we dropped into what's actually happening right now, we're on a Zoom call roof over our head. For me, I feel relatively well-fed and comfortable. Um, this moment is not as bad as the what-if mind could make it out to be. However, too much focus on what is and we don't take proper action. So we're, we're constantly balancing the what-if and what is. I think sometimes in the meditation world, there can be a little too much emphasis on the what-is mind. And uh, on, in the front line, like catastrophe world, a little too much emphasis on the what if mind. I think a good integration is, is a balance of the two. Um, and I like to think of them as a dance. Like they're, they're both informing the next step. And when you feel yourself too caught up in what if, just drop into what is here right now. Um, and then from what is here, like take action. So working with what if to what is. Once we've done that, now we can start to ask, okay, with, with all of these things that I'm assessing, with all the information I have in mind, what can I control? Like, what can I influence? This is a key question, even though it feels pretty basic, because it's going to be the thing that keeps us from getting caught in a helpless state. Um, have, has anyone here uh, heard of the term learned helplessness or the state, uh, yes. the thing? Okay. So popular thing in, in psychology. Um, and it's actually the default response to threatening situations. The, I, this is relatively new research, but for, for like 50 years, the belief was that um, this is a learned response to, uh, uh, to difficult events. And like an animal gets exposed to a shock periodically, sad studies, but they get exposed to a shock intermittently. They don't know when to expect it. And eventually they just stop trying to, to fight it. It's so learned helplessness. And the belief is that like humans as well can get caught in that learned helplessness when we feel like there's nothing we can do. It turns out the helplessness response is actually our default to difficult situations. What makes us unique as humans is we have this part of our brain that triggers what's called the dorsal raphe nucleus. And this is now being coined the hope circuit. So this is a part of our brain that says, yeah, this is difficult, but I know I can overcome it, but I know it'll get better. I, I imagine a better future. So that's unique to us as human beings, which is why we don't immediately curl up into a ball and play dead like other animals might do. 
when we're not activating that hope circuit, that's when we start defaulting into the helpless response. And so one of the best ways that we can activate the hope circuit is just to be asking ourselves, what can I control in this moment? What is a phone call I can make? Who is someone I can check in on? Uh, what is one action I can take? Even if it's small, that way of thinking is activating that part of the brain that keeps us from the helplessness response. And helplessness is going to be, is most strongly associated with depression, which is why this research is cool. Because once they figure out how you like specifically stimulate that part of the brain, um, there's a belief that we could actually just cure depression entirely. Um, but for right now, one of the ways we, we pull out of it is just by focusing on what we can control, which activates hope. Um, I wrote down so much. That was so good, the hope circuit. Oh, man. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And a book that I'd recommend for that is called Learned Hopefulness. Um, it's, it comes out, I believe, in a month or so. Um, but I, I uh, already read a copy. And it's, um, it, yeah, it's recommended by Deepak Chopra and Angela Duckworth, big names, um, as like the best book for coming out of depression and hope, hopelessness. I'm so glad to hear this. I'm so glad to hear there's research on this. I'm so glad that people are talking about it, so that they're writing about it, because I, I don't know how I dug myself out of depression. I, I still don't know how. I know I did. I know I did it without medication. I did it without meditation at the time. Um, that became a, a later tool, but I know I did that, and, and, I was, and I've never been able to put a name to it, but that's exactly what it was. It was, it was this process, and I love that there's, gonna, there's a research, and there's people writing books about it because I, I will be so glad to share that with someone that yeah. we can do that. Yeah. It's, it's hope. Yay. Yeah, hope. It, it, it is. <laughs> and it's such, it's such cool. It's so cool right now that we we have this emerging research supporting all this stuff and supporting anecdotal experiences like your own of like, I pulled myself out of it and then you can go back through it and see what was I doing that, that facilitated that and then being able to share that experience with others. Right. Yeah. Um, so, um, and so this just then takes us to the, the last step, at least for this sequence, um, which is that once I have a sense of like what I, what I need to do, like what is an action, what's the action plan to take given everything going on, then ask yourself, what is the minimum effective dose of stress required to do this task? So this is a very logical way of thinking through the experience. And it's because most of us tend to be subconsciously anchored to our fear and our anxiety. In times of crisis, especially, the immediate response, usually subconsciously, is like, I need to be stressed out. I need to be in fear. I need to be anxious. There's so much going on right now. How could I not be in this state? And also that this anxiety is the thing that's going to help me take action. It's the thing that's going to help me prepare to take care of people, to alarm people. And you could see how that, that could potentially be true. I think we, all, we have all had experiences where we've felt stress in our body and it causes us to take very quick action in a useful preparatory way. So we're not dismissing that. We're just challenging the amount of stress, the amount of angst we might need in order to take that action. So the simplest way to do this is, is create a number line from one to 10, where one is total zen, like non-doing total peace, and 10 is like total hot mess. <laughs> and then see where on that timeline from one to 10, with the action that you created in step four, like what do I need to do? 
can you do that act? What's the number that you need to do that action effectively? And not just do the action, but to do it well. We, we, we want to do things well in, in these times and in life in general. So I'm not trying to compromise success or productivity. What number do you have to be at to do this successfully? And if it's, let's say it's a, it comes up as a six, then ask yourself, what is, what is a six giving me that I can't get at a five? Or why, why can I do it at a six, but not at a, at a seven? So what happens at a seven that, that says like, oh, this is too much, but six feels okay. But what happens at a five where it feels like it's not enough, but six feels like it is enough. So you just start challenging and assessing and it'll help you uh, work through that subconscious anchoredness to this, the feeling of like, I need to be stressed in order to do something well. Because usually what you'll see is that actually I can take this action, I can do all of the things that are really important right now and be a lot more calm and grounded than I think I need to be. Um, and a quick little mindset shift around that is say like, what would happen if I actually did this from a place of love rather than a place of fear? Um, and that's a whole new way of uh, finding motivation for something that is usually from a much more grounded, uh, heartful place. Yeah, yeah. Well, if anyone has any questions or, or comments for Corey, please raise your hand and, and we'll be glad to put you on video or you can type it in the chat. Um, this is a great opportunity, you guys. So I, I've got all these great people. I'm like, ask these people questions. When did you just talk to someone like this? You know, but it's also, I also say, this is a great time to practice your public speaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> we, call this, we call this um, microphone practice on... Uh, on retreats. So you got your usual meditation practice. This is microphone practice. So I used practice. to get so much anxiety about this kind of stuff. Like I would want to say something, I'd be in a group and I would be like, Oh, I'd start shaking before I even had the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's such a good opportunity. But, um, so what in your experience has, Oh, Eleanor, cool. I will unmute you. I assume it's Eleanor. Hi. Hi. Okay. Well, you inspired me since I'm also working on my own um, being anxious and seen and so thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess just you were reiterating everything that I'm learning right now. Um, and one of the words that has been coming up over and over again is adaptability and what you were mentioning, just like accepting what is for what it is and then responding versus reacting. Mm -hmm. um, I've been connecting a lot of it to, um, I just like wrote a little blog uh, to nature and you, you see this in nature that everything is cyclical, that there is life and death and um, things flourish and they die. And there is a continue, um, continuity or a continuum of it. And just like what you're saying, the more we're wobbling or stressed about what it is, um, the more resistance we're just adding to our experience. So yeah. yeah, just an observation that I've had and yeah, just a, thank you for, um, just reiterating it to me in another way. Yeah. Beautifully put Eleanor. And, uh, and I appreciate you bringing in nature. Um, th there's a lot we can learn about cycles and life through nature. Everything has, uh, as its nature to, to be kind of like a sine wave, like it arises and it passes away. A thought arises, passes, an emotion arises, passes. A, a seed is planted, it grows, it eventually passes. Um, and, 
and there's there's deep wisdom in being able to meet those micro cycles within us and the more collective macro cycles um and and just seeing like what does this have to show us and what would it be like to to meet it as it is without resisting so strongly or holding on to the way things were, which again, like if we could hold on and then it immediately comes back and is like it was, then okay, maybe there's an argument for that, but it just doesn't work like that. And there's so much more freedom, ease, and potential for growth and transformation when we let experience work us, like move through us in the way that it's actually moving through us without fighting it so much. Um, so yeah, great parallel example. That's awesome. Elmore, okay. post your blog post in the chat so people can. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. yeah post it. <laughs> Jesse did it. this on a whim last week. So that's okay. Check it for typos. Here you go. Just <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Thank uh, you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Lorraine, you are unmuted. Hey, thank you very hey, friend. much for being with us today. Um, Last night I was uh, meditating and uh, it, I, I too had the thought that um, it's all about what we control. You know, Meredith and I talk about that quite a bit, control what you can control and uh, you just have to sort of leave the rest. And, and I, I also feel that so many people feel that they must be sort of obligated to freak out. And I've chosen um, right now, today, at least the path of, I will call it active concern mm. rather than freaking out. Um, because um, for me, becoming a jangling nerve end um, is, is not productive. Yeah. Uh, so active concern versus, um, you know, more unproductive anxiety is, is uh, what I'm, what I'm working on today. Beautiful, Lorraine. Thanks for sharing I like that. that. Active concern. And I feel like you can also use that for something when you just don't want to deal with someone's BS. You can be like, well, I have active concern for you, but not going to get in the middle of that. Yes. <laughs> smart. That's smart. Yeah. Hold on. Sorry. I've got, I've got a kiddo right here. You want to say hi? <laughs> She was doing something. I was like, what is that sound? <laughs> I have active concern for your sound. Um, does anyone else have any comments or questions for Corey? This is such a great, great opportunity. Um, how about, I have a question for you. W mm. What kind of process or tips or tricks have you seen, like, for example, when someone is in the funk, like I was in, and I know I, I'm able to snap out of it with, a schedule with all this, but I have to like get myself to that point. You know, it's like the big resistance. Like, mm. I don't wanna, I don't wanna, oh God, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta do it now. I gotta do it now. I gotta snap out of it. And then I do. Um, some people are more I, inclined to do that than others. And I think it's a practice that we learned, like you mentioned with, with learned helplessness. Mm -hmm. um, but have you found without going through all, all the steps we talked about. I mean, have you found something that's that's really impactful for someone to snap out of it? Um, Jarek Robbins talked like two days ago. He's like, go get in a cold shower <laughs> for three minutes. That'll knock you out of it. And I was like, ah, how about anything else? I don't want to do that. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. That sounds like something a, a Robbins would say. Exactly. <laughs> I like they're great. Um, yeah, the 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 one thing that I think is a, a little more accessible because here's the thing like you you have to first like get from the bed to the cold shower to do that, right. which is a right. whole obstacle in itself, especially when there's like deeper despair. Um I find uh, I don't, this might just be too basic, but um, uh, less less thinking about everything. Like, okay, so decide beforehand what. Like, let's just say waking up in the morning, you want to wake up early, you want to do something, uh, or you want to do that cold shower. Um, let's say the steps like to the cold shower. Make that decision in the morning, and then the first thing when you wake up, note notice the thinking mind come in because it's, it's going to come in in a big way. It's going to be like, Oh, I just want to, I want to hit snooze. I don't want to get up and that'll trigger emotions. So those we're working with like very algorithmically, like how the thoughts are going to trigger emotions, which are then going to trigger the actions. And in Burma, we would have to wake up um, like at 3am every morning. And there were a lot of mornings where I was just like, I do not want to do this. Like this is the last thing I want to do. And so what I would work with is like the first step of that trickle down process, which was the thought. The more I gave that thought space of, of like, oh, I don't want to do, the more it would just cascade and build. And then it would, then I, I wouldn't get out of bed. I'd sleep in. Um, so I just use a simple strategy of labeling the thought as thinking. So as soon as the thought would arise, just label it thinking, thinking, thinking. So I'd be lying in bed, don't want to just thinking, don't want to just thinking. And I, and it was this dance between like labeling the thought and then doing the action as I'm, as I'm going. So like I'm getting out of bed, feeling all the resistance, but not, it's like, it's like an 18 wheeler just on your heels and you're just staying just before it. Um, so, so the main to just make it very practical is just label the thinking mind as it's arising. And as the thoughts continue to grow, just like label it quickly, quickly, quickly. It's like throwing a cast net on top of the thought. A cast and net you're not awareness. necessarily judging the thought. So you wouldn't be like, that thought's bullshit, 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 bullshit. Like, yeah. That would be me. Like, no, bullshit. you're just like, no, thinking. Yeah. So thinking. In, in a lot of meditation traditions, that's the practice that you're using with experience. You're labeling the experience as it's arising. So if it's a thought, you'd label it thinking. If it's an, like anger, you'd label it anger. If it's physical pain in the body, you'd label it pain or even get more subtle with it, like heat, tingliness. And in that way, you're, you're stepping out of the judgment, the ideas about the experience and into the direct experience. The thing that's going to prevent action in those moments of like actually going to the cold shower or getting up is the momentum that the thinking mind creates with emotions. And it's, there's space to just observe the thinking mind um, and in meditation, you do, you could do choiceless awareness where you just watch the mind think. And that's a powerful thing to do to like create that relationship with your thinking mind. But that's the so thinking helpful. Mind- Gosh, I didn't realize how judgmental I was. And that, and you mentioned that in the beginning, like you, you tended to lean toward the judgmental with yourself. And clearly yes. I do too, because I label a lot of my thoughts BS. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So instead just, I would just yeah. change it as thinking. And, and you're treating all the, the clouds moving through the sky just as another cloud. doesn't matter if it's big, small, gray, white, black, just another cloud. Todd has the question, is that similar to noting in meditation or is it yes. different? Yeah, so mental, it's called labeling, noting, 
Um, okay. Yeah. Cool. Lorraine, you have a question. Let me unmute you again. You're unmuted. Uh, sorry, my second question, which is okay. really sort of a little minor one, is uh, Corey, was your uh, uh, experience as a monk in the in the Buddhist tradition? Yes. Yeah. So um, the Theravada Buddhist tradition and the lineage of Mahasi Sayadaw. Beautiful. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. We probably have time for another question if anyone has it. If not, we can just keep chatting. That's that's so helpful. Oh, my goodness. Um, thinking, 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 thinking. <laughs> Yeah. I feel like I'm just going to be wandering through the house being like thinking, 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 thinking. It's thinking. a really powerful practice once you implement it in that way. Yeah. Wow. I don't even know what to do with this right now. It's kind of blowing my mind. I love when I talk to someone and I get like this mind blowing tidbit and then life is different. It's so cool. It's so cool. And you just gifted that for me because it's blowing my mind. Awesome. Um, anger, anger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I came from a childhood where emotions were better like absorbed and not expressed. So if I have been, spent a lifetime absorbing emotions and not noting them because they were not to be expressed to actually take a step now and be like anger, pain, frustration to note that as an adult, I can't imagine what that's going to do for me. Honestly, like this is, this is a huge one, huge one. So thank you. Uh, oh, Nadine, beautiful. can I unmute you? Yeah. Hey, friend. Hi. Hi. Um, can you just repeat a little bit about the primary and the secondary effects? I, I work in a, a medical environment with a lot of people with chronic pain, mm -hmm. which I think might, that's secondary, I think is the cause of the chronic pain sometimes that I can't tap into. Yeah. So, um, there's a book called You Are Not Your Pain that will go into this, uh, much more deeply and scientifically. Um, uh, and it's all about the intersection of mindfulness and chronic pain and, and really like primary pain versus secondary pain. But in the context of chronic pain, the, the primary pain is, is the chronic pain. Um, and it's primary because it's, it's already there. There's, you know, we could do stuff over time to maybe start to alleviate it and, and shift it, but it's, it's arisen and Unfortunately, in this moment, there's nothing we can do about its existence. The secondary pain is how we're relating to that. And, and so with, it's interesting with brains of people that um, experience chronic pain, the, the thought, uh, the areas of the brain that are triggering, like um, the pain response are, are very deeply connected the neural circuitry is very deeply connected to uh, areas of the brain like fear and resistance and those thought patterns of, of fighting. So uh, with chronic pain, the, the, the response is just so deeply conditioned to resist it when it arises that it's, it's a much more intricate journey of trying to separate that and finding some ease within the pain. Uh, whereas somebody that might be experiencing acute pain might be able to relax into it a little bit more. So, um, so the main thing just with working with chronic pain is I would say first developing a self-compassion toward the pain, because that's changing the experience that you're layering on top of it. Um, the, the secondary pain for them is often going to come up as, uh, the common ones are, 
my life was better when I wasn't in pain or uh, no narrative and just like general frustration of for being with the pain or the very common one is how long is this flare up going to last? Is it going to be the rest of the day? Is it going to be the next few weeks? What if I'm not able to go back to work? Um, and so being able to see that caked on top of the primary pain and drop into what is, what is actually here just in this moment? What are the sensations of the pain? What's it doing? Is it ebbing and flowing independent of the narrative starts to be liberating. And the interesting thing is the intensity of the primary pain then actually starts to go down. So there's this soup that is created where the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You, you know, you have the primary plane plus the secondary plane. It's not one plus one equals two. It's one plus one equals three, four or five. Mm -hmm. So starting to let that down, like even the unit of one as a primary pain starts going down to like 0.75 or 0.5. So we do directly impact the primary pain by working with the secondary pain. Interesting. Thank yeah. you very much. Fascinating. Yeah. Thanks, Nadine. All right, Corey. Well, this was awesome. I'm going to come to one of your retreats when we have, wait, if I'm invited. <laughs> you are absolutely invited. Although Whenever we get out of this. It's going to be canceled. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. 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 So where do you usually host those? Are they like um, Usually in the New States York or? area. Yeah. Oh, good. My popular one that I've been doing for like the last six years uh, has been, is on Long Island. There's supposed to be one in June, um, but uh, most likely we'll need to to shift that to well, looking at November and trying to do a virtual retreat, which will be oh, a very interesting yeah. thing. Well, my birthday is November. I should do this for my oh, birthday. Oh, cool. Cool. That would be great. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone, this is Corey Mascara. His book, I posted a link to Stop Missing Your Life. And um, I am just so grateful that you joined us today. This was super helpful. And um, just, just gratitude to you, my friend. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. It was a pleasure to be with you. Um, and, uh, and I have a podcast, Practicing Human, that oh, that's right. free 10-minute tidbit, tidbits that can be uh, useful if you want to go deeper into this without spending any money. Yeah, um, Practicing so. Human podcast. Yeah. All right, Thank great, you. Corey. Well, take care, stay safe, and we'll talk soon. Likewise. Bye, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.